Return to Northmore, episode 16, running time, 30 minutes. Hi, this is Kim. And this is Tim. Welcome to the Return to Northmore podcast. So, this episode, part three of the Temple of Art. This will be the last part that takes place inside the temple. And we will be talking about resurrection rituals. Yes, resurrection rituals important because the first scene tonight, the Sahuagin are trying to resurrect their fallen baron. So how do you feel about resurrection as a policy? You know, a lot of people say that death is an interesting thing that happens in D&D that can lead to many adventures trying to find the bits to resurrect someone, but I have found that's not so much the case. Well, I guess it kind of depends on whether it's as a plot device or if it's just a way of characters endlessly coming back. Right, and for me, when I have sort of a big arcing story that I'm involving the players in, it's sort of a weird side thing to say, oh, one of our guys died, we need to go resurrect him. Forget about the world ending. But how can we save the world if we don't have the guy? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a trope of that never-ending D&D quest thing as opposed to a D&D story that actually has a beginning, middle, and end. Well, for instance, in our game, my character Tempest has died in the past, in the far past, and has been resurrected by her god. Now, whether this gives her the the opportunity to be resurrected in the future is dubious at best. In fact, it's been hinted at that she got the one-time pass and that's it. I think in some games it can be interesting, but in general I consider death to be a huge pain-in-the-butt diversion from the main story. I think that with our group in particular, we would prefer a character to die and to die heroically and to let them rest and then bring somebody else in rather than go, oh, now we have to stop and go back to town and find a priest and find somebody to do this and that and the other thing. And in 3.0 and 3.5, it was a little bit less strenuous because it was just something you could cast. Now it's a little bit more difficult. Right. I remember when we did the uh, 20th level characters versus the 20th fifth level iconic dragon mini and that battle i think during the battle almost all the characters died and were raised at least once at least once at least once so that's something that's i guess a different flavor of how it goes when you get to that level one of the things that brought up this banter topic was that tim had described this ritual as a hideous ritual of resurrection and i got to thinking well if it were us would that be a hideous ritual of resurrection if you're trying to resurrect a pc and a bunch of monsters came in would they consider it hideous Probably. Yeah, so I think it's all a matter of perspective, like most things. I think so, too. Although, I know if I had grown very attached to my character, and that I wanted to continue the story arc, I would consider finding out what it would take to get resurrected. On the other hand, if they died well, and it was kind of the end of a story, yeah, let them go. Yeah, I think for the majority of cases, at least with us, by the time a character dies, and we might be able to be high enough level to consider resurrecting them, they're usually ready to move on to a different character. So I really love to hear what other people think of resurrection. Is it a normal part of your game? Do people expect to be resurrected at the drop of a hat? Or is it something for special extenuating circumstances? Is it something that all kinds of monsters and PCs and NPCs can participate in? Or is it just limited to a small group of people? Tell us what you think. On to our first encounter of the evening, the Amphitheater of Beauty. So this is a large amphitheater that is used for performance art, or at least was back when the Temple of Art was active. And it is a round room with a stage on one end. It has some semicircular seating uh, benches. 
that are made out of painted wood covered with tile, and pretty much everything in here is painted wood covered with tile. It is a round room. It has some side rooms attached to it. Those side rooms are full of cosmetics and other sorts of uh, materials for the stage. There is a small antechamber that is connected to the front of it, and that antechamber is what connects the amphitheater of beauty to the Hall of Masters. In the antechamber are magical forces that prevent sound from going from the amphitheater into the Hall of Masters. So this is one of the reasons that the PCs will be unable to hear anything that's going on in the amphitheater of beauty. Until they get into the antechamber, in which case they will immediately begin to hear strange chanting in the far-speak language. If they are to take a look into the side chambers, they will probably not at first glance see anything strange in there. However, if they search the rooms, they will find some Sahuagin minions in there that they can fight. Those minions are hiding there with the idea that the PCs will hear the chanting, go into the main amphitheater, and get surprised from behind in a pincer maneuver with the various Sahuagin that are in the main area and the ones that are hiding in the wings. So once the characters move on into the amphitheater, they will see a stage that is about five feet higher than the main floor. And on this stage is a dead body of a gigantic Sahuagin baron. And this creature is a six-armed creature that is quite large. And again, this is another tremendous D&D mini. If you happen to have the D&D mini for the Sahuagin baron, it is an awesome, awesome mini. Uh, it is very large, and it, on its side, makes a very nice piece to have in the middle of your stage. The characters will also notice that the back wall is entirely stained glass, and it has been smashed through, and there is water slowly leaking into the chamber. On the other side of the stained glass now is the Sahuagin cave complex, and the Baron was extending his domain, digging through, when he broke through into the amphitheater of beauty. And got his throat cut. Yes, as he broke through the stained glass, was already pretty hurt, fell through, and a big chunk of stained glass slit his throat open, and he collapsed on the stage. Not to mention all of the magics that were broken from the entire complex being shut down due to the key action that had been in the guardroom. Speaking of keys, the Sohagen priest is standing behind the baron. Next to the priest is a giant trident. Upon the trident is the mentor. Ew. One of the prongs is behind his head, and two of the prongs are through his shoulders, giving him a nice impaled look on the trident. At the end of this ritual, if it is successful, the baron will come back to life, and the mentor's life will be given up. There is also one other figure hanging out on the stage, and that is the Sahuagin trident expert. And he is a trident expert because mostly he has a magical trident. The magical trident works very much like the bone claw monster, if you've had experience with that. If you come within three squares, he has threatening reach, and so his trident can extend out and poke you as you're coming around. He is the priest's bodyguard. We fondly refer to that as the extendo trident. And the Extendo Trident is a magic item that the PCs can take away and sell, and I have listed the item's level and cost in here as well. The PCs will also notice that there is a large clam-shaped fan laying on top of the Baron's chest. Right, and this fan is inscribed with all sorts of runes and such, and it's what the priest is reading off of for his ritual. And he's essentially laid it out on top of the Baron's chest as he's reading. Part of the things that the PCs can't see, but you as a GM are going to need to know, is that this stage is riddled with trap doors that have become somewhat unstabilized due to the Baron crashing through and all of this movement that's been going on. So once the PCs get up there and start having battle with either the priest or the expert, they could be pushed into one of those trap doors. And it's up to you if you want to go ahead and mark on the map one that's obviously gaping open. There is a 10-foot drop from the stage down to the 5-foot dugout beneath the stage. Again, that was used originally to move props up and down. There's no elevators or anything, but there's a ladder under there they can use to 
get back up onto the stage. I think that this would be a fascinating encounter for somebody like a warlord because they have a lot of push-pull kind of maneuvers that they can operate with the rest of the PCs. Not to mention that the rest of the room is filled with Sahuagin minions. Spread out among the main chamber here, as well as those side chambers as we discussed a minute ago, is 18 of these Sahuagin minions. We aren't going to go over the stats since we've used them before. They're pretty standard. They can stab you with the trident or throw the trident. There are a whole, whole lot of them. And so this is a great opportunity to discuss. Should you tell your players whether they're minions or not? I say no. And I say yes. The reason I say yes is if you have someone like a fighter who has something like cleave, it's tremendously cool to see them wade into the big pile of minions and just start cleaving through, knocking down two per round. Whereas if they go through and use their giant, let's say, Brute Strike, which is a 3d6 power, and they do 18 points of damage to something that would have only taken one point to kill, eh, it just seems anticlimactic to me. I don't know. I kind of like to have a character go in and be surprised and go, wow, I just took down three guys. That's pretty impressive. And then get some confidence instead of kind of going in there and being overly confident and then running into somebody who isn't a minion. So I think it depends on the nature of the encounter and your players and whether they've had a chance to meet this type of monster before and a lot of other things. So it's something, again, I think you have to play by ear. Most of the time, if you have a pretty tactical group, I think they're going to figure out which ones are minions pretty quickly anyway, so maybe it's a good idea to tell them. If it's more of a horror situation where it's much scarier to not know which one is the minion, I think that gives you some influence onto what you say. I don't think that you should just come right out, though, and say, oh yeah, and all of those are minions. I would much rather hear something like, well, they all seem to be fairly inexperienced and young warriors, or if you have had them encounter minions in the past, such as on the riverboat, when the characters originally came into town, you can say that they look a lot like those folks. Whatever it takes to actually say that they're minions, but not come right out and say, hey, they're minions. Up to your style. Tell us what you think. One of the last things that they'll notice about this setup here is that jammed into the Baron's chest is a crystal key which has been drained of blood. It formerly contained Kantos' blood, or Kantos is the, our name for the mentor. And the key is what's connecting Kantos to the Baron and allowing that transfer of energies. This is a classic hideous ritual in that it's misusing something in a tremendously nasty way. Now, if your PCs react anything like our PCs did, they're just going to charge into battle. Everybody has a close personal relationship with a mentor and they are going to be shocked and horrified and do whatever they can do to save him. They will be able to discern that the mentor is still alive. He won't be conscious necessarily, but he will have life signs that they can tell from afar that he's still alive and kicking. In terms of zazzing up the description of the ritual itself... I think you have a lot of options. First of all, if you want to have players make arcana checks or religion checks to see if they can figure out what's going on, I highly encourage that. I gave you some sample DCs for what they could find out in the write-up. To find out things like the connection between the mentor and the body that's being revived, the crystal key and what its purpose might be. Also, on the Baron's arm is a scarified symbol that matches that chaos cult symbol, except it has the addition of a sickening green gem that has been embedded in his arm above the symbol. And this detail will become very important later on in the story. So please be sure to highlight that, at least in some fashion, so that the PCs have some connection as to why this is going on and kind of keep it all together. 
And if you want to make it more movie-like, you can have life force draining out of the mentor, and you can see it draining out into the Baron. You can also have them make Arcana religion checks to see that the ritual is starting to get toward its end, it's reaching a fever pitch, and so forth. In that vein, the PCs definitely need to stop this ritual before the Baron comes up, because he will kick their butts. We did not include the stats for the Baron, because you can use them right out of the monster manual if that becomes necessary. But your PCs at this level ought to be smart enough that a six-armed, large creature is going to eat them. So they should be running if that happens, but hopefully it won't. So let's talk a little bit about what they need to do to stop the ritual. First of all, they can kill all the Swahagan. That's the easy way. The second is, if they bloody the priest, or if they defeat the trident expert, his bodyguard, the priest will stop the ritual to take them on and try to take out the PCs before continuing. And he certainly has enough of his own powers to do that with at least a couple of the PCs. The other choice is that you can make this a skill challenge and have them do enough arcana checks to figure out what sort of counter words to say, maybe to disrupt the magical energies. If you've got a bunch of wizards and the sort of thing in the party, feel free to do a, uh, some sort of uh, skill challenge there. Or a bunch of clerics and paladins for that matter. Absolutely. And it really depends on your group whether they think that would be more interesting rather than just doing the battle. I can totally see groups where they would love to have a couple guys hang back and try to disrupt the ritual with counter magic while everyone else is holding off the Sawagan. I would love to see a bunch of Eladrin go ahead and use multiple face steps, snag that clam fan, and then destroy it. Right, or rip the key out of the Baron's chest, or you know, any of those things would work. We tried that. Yeah, it zapped you. So my suggestion on the key is that if you try to pull it out, it should do a little damage to them, since it is heavily magical. I take issue with the little damage, because it kicked my butt. It took a lot of damage. So, depending on your situation, it might do a lot of damage. I would suggest if they pull it out, they use gloves. Or perhaps tongs. We didn't have gloves. Nor tongs. Nor tongs. Well, that's why it damaged We just had an emotionally involved, heart-bereft Aladrin wanting to save her lover. So let's get into the stats here for the Trident Expert and the Priest. The Trident Expert, again, it's a pretty standard Sahuagin. He can throw his Trident or he can stab you with it. The key thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that it has a reach three. So that's three full squares out. And it's a threatening reach so that if anybody comes within that, it immediately makes an attack of opportunity against them and zazang zaps them with the Trident. And this becomes really important, especially when people are trying to move around that stage. Because it is quite large, but it's a little bit less than three squares around parts of him. Right, now keep in mind that you can make only one opportunity attack around. Choose wisely. Yes, if the players can run up in bulk, he'll only be able to stab one of them. Unfortunately, we didn't have those kinds of tactics. <clears throat> yeah, tactics. So, the Sahuagin Priest, however, uh, does have some much more interesting abilities. He has the standard stab you with the trident, throw the trident at you. But in addition, he has a thing called Water Bolt, where essentially he shoots a bolt of water at you up to 20 squares away. Unfortunately, it's only 10 squares away out of water. And it does quite a bit of damage. It's a sort of one PC sort of thing. But then he has what I think is the much cooler ability, which is called Spectral Jaws. That is an encounter power, so he can only use it once. However, it recharges when a target saves against the effect. So how do you use this? I cast it at Kim's character, Tempest. She takes five points of damage per round while the Spectre Jaws are gnawing on her. Then as soon as she saves versus that effect, my power recharges. So I can either cast it on her again, or I can cast it on someone else. That bites. In addition to the five points of damage around, you do get a minus two penalty to all defenses. So if you Spectral Jaws the guy who's in the middle of the 15 minions, it can be quite exciting. Also remember, the Sahuagin all have Blood Frenzy, which means when they're attacking characters that are bloodied, they get additional bonuses to attack and to damage. 
So this is a huge battle, a huge ritual-stopping excitement. It should be pretty time-consuming. We're only going to be going over basically two rooms tonight because this battle does take quite a bit of time to play out. And there is a lot of emotional drama. Yes. Before, during, and after this entire battle. So let's talk a little bit about action points. When my group of characters came into this room, some of them had three action points because they had gone through a whole lot of encounters, including the Kumat and the uh, carotid columns, multiple carrying crawlers in some cases, before they reached this room. So as a result, they had stacked up a whole bunch of action points. Imps, slods, all sorts of goodness. Exactly. And so as a result, that really is what these action points are for, is to give you some options when you get to the sort of the final battle of the night. And my character certainly took advantage of all three of her action points. Absolutely. So action points, don't forget to give them out. Don't forget to remind their players to use them. Uh, This is the time where they become very important. And this is really your climatic ending. So let them have that moment. And your job here is to enable the PCs to be as cool as possible while still making it so that they have to stop the ritual. So if they want to wade through and kill three or four minions at a time, let let them do that. Let them be cool. Don't, you know, stymie them in that way. But if they get up onto the stage and try to start doing things up there, that's when it starts to get more tricky. Don't forget to have some minions hiding out in those small rooms off to the sides because that can come up and attack them from behind. And especially if you have a few PCs who are standing in the back and trying to figure out what's going on with this ritual, they will be engaged in battle then. This is a really fun encounter. It was We had a tremendous time with it. I can't wait for you guys to hear the actual play recording. Uh, I think it turned out to be very fun. So, on to the next encounter. Now, this is one that's a little more interesting because the one we just discussed is sort of the climatic end encounter of the dungeon, if you will. This is an encounter that's a room that the group didn't hit on the way in, and so they happened to hit it on the way out. And they're dragging their mentor's broken body on the way out. We took him off of the trident. And this is the workroom. And it's a room that's off of the Hall of Nature. It's the room where a lot of repairs and fabrication of art objects took place, uh, as well as where things for the stage were fabricated. This is also the staging area for the coup that the Chaos Cult. So the idea is, is that the Chaos Cult pack themselves in crates and have themselves delivered as works of art to the workroom. Then they would burst out of them at some lull point in the evening and kill everybody within the temple. And they pretty much succeeded. The only thing they didn't succeed in is that they didn't kill everybody before the temple was sealed off and frozen in time. So there will be some carnage within this room. The PCs can find these crates that have been burst open and make some perception checks and have some ideas of what actually happened here. Right. So you do need to help them reconstruct why these crates are broken open. Uh, Maybe you have clothing that's discarded inside the crates. They look like they've been broken through from the inside. Perhaps a lot more damage is in this workroom where they were kind of psyching themselves up and getting themselves into a frenzy. And so there's a lot more damage, a lot more graffiti. There could be discarded items that they decided they didn't want to take with them when they went through their rampage. There's also all sorts of art materials around that might have been sprayed, so bright colors dumped on the ground or that sort of thing. There is a small barracks room here that has six beds in it. Unfortunately, there are six dead people on these beds that were killed in the first wave of the Chaos Cult attack. 
The map itself is somewhat complicated, so please refer to our materials. But essentially, there's an upper terrace room that where is the main body of the workroom, and that's where you come in from the Hall of Nature. Then there's a staircase leading down to the lower level, and that lower level is where these crates are. And there's also a large brazier here, and this brazier will become important in just a second. There is also a part that is somewhat hidden in this map. And when you look at it, there will be a distinction between the upper area and the lower area. In that shadowed part that goes underneath the upper loft area is a hidden door. Not a secret door, but you just can't see it on the map. If the characters go down that way, they will find it. And that is the door that leads into a vault. And this vault is where they kept things like gold, silver jewels all sorts of things like that that they use to build and restore art in addition there will be some very interesting costumes that were very finely wrought by Eladrian craftsmen artifacts that come from different realms that are incredibly priceless that are very delicate that would only go on special exhibitions whatever kind of will tweak your character's interests and perhaps even call to some of their background exactly so things that they have been wanting things that maybe remind them of their past things that maybe would appeal to their out-of-combat sensibilities, fine dresses, chalices, really interesting pieces of art, anything like that, because there is a huge amount of different varieties of art throughout this temple. If you looked at the Hall of People, there were costumes, there was jewelry, there were certain personal items, so some of these very valuable items could be stored there. So this vault is sort of things that are not currently on display, but not things that are in long-term storage. So this is your short-term storage. But there's a lot of raw gold, raw silver, Uh, There might be magical tools, magical thieves tools, magical painting tools, that sort of thing uh, stored in here as well. So you can decide as a GM what you want to give out as treasure parcels, and you can leave some of those items in the vault. When your characters get to this door, they are going to notice a very large scorch mark on the floor. So there's stairs leading down to this door. At the top of the stairs, there is a greasy scorch mark. The reason there's a greasy scorch mark is one of the chaos cultists tried to go down into the vault. And unfortunately, the Guardian stopped him. Now, this Guardian is a flame skull that is living inside that brazier. And as the characters come down, when they get within 10 feet of the door, the flame skull will rise from the brazier and challenge them, indicating that the vault is closed and that they are not allowed to enter. The PCs can try to convince him that they are of noble blood. They can do the song and dance with the key. They can try to prove it to him, say we have every right to be here. So essentially, this is up to you. You can run it as a skill challenge. Perhaps they do you do diplomacy checks to convince him, or perhaps they just can convince him quite easily it's up to you how beat up they are Uh, or perhaps you know they want to fight him and it just becomes a battle right away there's a lot of possible ways it can go but this is your chance to tune this encounter for your group Uh, if they like riddles there's all kinds of riddles you can get off the internet that you could use maybe he challenges them with one of those those tend to be sort of cheesy for more experienced players but newer players tend to like them so it really depends on your group and how much you want to hit them for at that point in time. Now remember, they might be coming through this area long before they get to the final battle. So they could be fresh as daisies when they get in here and chomping at the bit for a fight. So if they do have a fight, this is a pretty tough monster. This is a level 7 creature. The main thing it has is the fireball. Mmm, fireballs. Now, one thing that I want to bring up before we get into the fireball, there are six dead bodies in the barracks room. 
the PCs have been instructed to burn all bodies. And so this is a really great place to do that. This will start making sense once you get the Flame Skull involved in battle. Perhaps a synergy. Perhaps. The fireball is an encounter power, so he only gets to do it once, and the fireball is what he used to incinerate the Chaos Cultist at the top of the stairs. He cannot leave his brazier, so if the PCs run out of the room, they're fine. They're safe. However, if you're like my PCs and they kick over the brazier, the Flame Skull is released and freed and is more than happy to wipe them out. Well, you have to understand that he is undead. And he has been bound to this brazier, and he's not exactly a happy camper. So when he is freed from the brazier by it being knocked over, he's more than happy to take out his years of pent-up rage on the PCs. And boy, does he have some rage issues. So he has a fiery bite, which essentially he has to be in the same square as you, and then he gives you a bite. Uh, In addition, he has a flame ray, which is a ray attack for 2d6 plus 5 fire damage, which is an outwill power, pretty tough. He also has mage hand, which can be hilarious if you do it right, so he can lift skirts and pull pouches and uh, tickle people or whatever it takes, depending on the mood that you want to set for your encounter. There's a bunch of burning bodies. He can move embers and stuff around. He could, in fact, cause one of the bodies to raise its arm, and uh, maybe that will scare off one of the PCs. Not funny. So all kinds of fun stuff there. So once they get past the Flame Skull, they will need to get through the door. The door is locked. It will take Thievery DC 20 to get through it. Or brute force. So that is the exciting workroom. When they're getting out, remember, they have their alive but very unconscious mentor with them. And they are not able to revive him in any way. Right. And this is also the time to remind them that they need to burn any bodies that they have found. Of course, they can always choose not to do it, but you should remind them that they were charged to do so. And that it would be besmirching their honor if they did not. Remember, these people are descendants of the people of Balaqua here, so it's their ancestors they're dealing with. Give them ample time to rest if they want to. They are not under time pressure anymore, seeing as they have found and hopefully uh, recovered, if successfully, their mentor. They, By the way, they should be able to, with a very like DC-10 heal check, stabilize the mentor, pack gauze in his shoulders and other wounds, and, and get him stable, but he will remain unconscious uh, until a time of your choosing. The PCs can then get out of the temple, and the only way back out is the way they came in, which is back through the Kumat layer, so hopefully they took care of him, otherwise things could be really interesting when they get out. There will be a battle when they exit the temple, which we will cover next time. That battle is your traditional sort of Belloc battle, like in Raiders of the Last Ark, as we will find out. Some variants that you can do, if they decide that they want to pursue where the Sahuagin came from through that crack in the glass, they may be able to do so with some careful prying apart of the glass. That's up to you if you want to have them explore some Sahuagin caves. In addition, your character should be third level at this point. They should have plenty of experience from the temple here. To get them up to third, I suggest you go ahead and let them level before they exit the temple. It will be apparent why when we get to that. So, I hope you've enjoyed the Temple of Art, our first big old dungeon for Return to Northmore, and we'll be wrapping up with the exit battle next time. So, if you have any questions or comments regarding this episode or any of our other episodes, you can get a hold of us at the forums at SpookyOuthouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. You've been listening to Return to Northmore, a podcast released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license by Tim White and Kim Stone. Our theme music is Charge of the Valiant from Dronalyn's Tower, Legends of Kithalin Volume 1, Tales of the Long Forgotten, used by permission of its composer, David Allen Young. Find out more about their fantastic gaming music at dronalyn.com. Visit us and many other fine podcasts at spookyouthouse.com. <laughs>